This is Radio EcoShock with Alex Smith. You probably heard half the world's glaciers will disappear within a single lifetime. We have the lead author of that breaking science, Dr. David Rounds. So it's fair to say that if emissions continue, non-polar glaciers would add half a foot of sea level rise. Yes, all of the glaciers excluding the ice sheets, that's correct. Then we go to a little-known geoengineering that is going on to cool the planet for the last few decades. That's over now. A co-author of The New Bombshell from James Hansen tackles more warming revealed as ship and transport emissions are cleaned up. Netherlands researcher Leon Simons. If it results in temperatures which we have never seen ever in our lifetimes, we should know about that and we should be able to prepare for that because otherwise we can be faced with the consequences with even more severely than if we were preparing. So I think that's, that's really crucial. We're now heading for the iceberg in a way blind. Well, we have the binoculars, we have the, the information is there, we have the knowledge that there is an iceberg approaching. We should be preparing, we should be getting the lifeboats ready. The ship stack warming news is just part of a huge new paper led by Hansen, which also predicts sea level rise much higher than thought. He also says Earth might get up to 10 degrees C hotter before settling into a new state of equilibrium. Now, we don't know if tomorrow is scheduled, so we want to be sure that we have enough money to enjoy our lifestyle today. But we cannot do anything without recording the crazy hot spell in Europe as 2023 began. Europe is experiencing spring weather at the start of January. It won't last too long, but there it is now. Too many all-time heat records to count were broken. Normally, when a new heat level is breached for a particular day of the year, it will be by half a degree or one degree higher. This time, heat records in many European cities were 4 degrees C higher, that's 7 degrees Fahrenheit, even in a few places up to 10 degrees C higher, 20 degrees Fahrenheit higher than has ever been recorded before. As Brett Wilkins reports in Common Dreams, it's the most extreme event ever seen in European climatology, said one climatologist. Nothing stands close to this. The headline is, Absolute madness, record-shattering heat dome hits Europe. Meteorologist Scott Duncan said, There are too many records to count, literally thousands. Overnight minimum temperatures are like summer. Duncan tweets, Warsaw in Poland just smashed its January records by over 5 degrees C. It was 66 degrees Fahrenheit, 19 C, in Warsaw. The average maximum is 33 Fahrenheit, or 0.5 C. That's the average for the maximum. People were out in t-shirts and shorts in January in Poland. New heat records for January were also set in Hungary, Switzerland, Lithuania, Czech Republic, and Denmark. This also comes after a serious cold spell that lasted almost two weeks in northern Europe and gave them a fright. In northern hemisphere, the waves of the jet stream go from the Arctic cold to tropical hot these days. That's the new it was 21 degrees C, about 70 degrees Fahrenheit, in Bavaria on New Year's Eve. Europeans went to the beaches in their spring jackets, okay, and walked around town in glorious not winter. 
Horticulturalists and farmers are nervous about possible impacts on the plant world. Unnatural gas prices drop from stratospheric high to levels seen before the pandemic. The high prices were based on the cold winter, and so far this isn't. This is a relief to some of my European listeners and friends I know. Climatologists have warned that much of the warming we will make comes not just as mega heat waves in the summer. Winters will be warmer, especially in the Northern Hemisphere. The winters may be punctuated by brutal influxes of Arctic cold air now and then, but when the totals are in, northern winters will be warmer. In addition, as Scott Duncan noted, the nights will be warm. Both winter warming and night warming are less visible to humans, and so we may miss this phase of climate change. I won't go into all the reasons why warmer winters sound great for Canadians and Europeans and people in Siberia. Let's just say bugs and food are involved, along with all the wildlife and plants. Europe is suddenly 4 degrees C hotter, about 7 degrees Fahrenheit, and this comes after amazing heat waves last summer and the summer before, remember? We begin to ask, has something in the climate shifted? Does warming come in steps rather than a gradual ramp of rising temperatures? I am working on a program addressing a possible cause for a jump in warming. You will hear part of that in my second interview this show with Leon Simons. Radio Ecoshock. First, we go to one of the biggest geophysical changes on this planet ever caused by a single species. Earth has just over 200,000 glaciers, we know that now, and they are splattered all over, from Alaska to the Andes, from Scandinavia to Nepal, Africa, all over. Around 100,000 of them will be gone during the lifetimes of our children due to climate change. Let's get this breaking science directly from the lead author. Hundreds of thousands of glaciers around the world could vanish in coming decades, and that loss doesn't even include Greenland or Antarctica. These non-polar glaciers will add significantly to sea level rise. We talk with the lead author of the January 2023 paper titled Global Glacier Change in the 21st Century, Every Increase in Temperature Matters. Dr. David Rounce is Assistant Professor of Civil and Environmental Engineering at Carnegie Mellon University. David previously conducted postdoctoral research in the Glaciers Group at the University of Alaska Fairbanks. He leads a team who measured every glacier on the planet, and the news is not good. From Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, David Rounce, welcome to Radio EcoShock. Thanks for having me here. Did you really manage to map every glacier in the world? So mapping every glacier in the world is a large effort that a group of international scientists have done over the last decade. We took their glacier inventory as a set of initial conditions for our study, and then we projected the future change of all of those glaciers, all 215,000 of them, for various climate change scenarios. So we tend to picture giant glaciers calving off Alaska or Greenland. We've seen video, or a few have seen it from cruise ships, maybe. But there can't be 100,000 of those big ones. So what qualifies to be a glacier? The typical definition of a glacier involves some amount of ice based off of a size threshold and its ability to move. So you have snow that accumulates and remains and turns into ice over multiple years, and you have some amount of glacier flow. 
Right. So if it's just a frozen pond and it stays there and doesn't move, that's not a glacier. Correct. There are, it's up for debate depending on who you talk to, but typically that's how people consider a glacier. Okay. So in 2019, there was a funeral with all the trappings in Iceland for a glacier that went extinct. So even small glaciers have their fans. Do these small glaciers play any stabilizing role in local water cycles, or could they influence regional weather? It depends on the scale of the system that you're looking at. When we think about glaciers, even small glaciers, they can certainly be a source of fresh water, especially at the end of summers during periods of drought. However, we also want to recognize that glaciers can be very important for other reasons, whether it be ecotourism or it can have a cultural or spiritual significance to the local communities. And so the loss of even small glaciers can be quite important. Well, looking at glaciers outside the poles, your study considers scenarios from 1.5 degrees C warming all the way up to 4 degrees warming. Most scientists I talk with are done with 1.5. That is imminent. How much will these glaciers add to sea level rise if warming reaches 3 degrees? So we estimate that the glacier's contributions to sea level rise, and that's excluding the Greenland and Antarctic ice sheets, for a three-degree scenario, that will be approximately 125 millimeters between 2015 and 2100. Okay, so if I read your paper correctly, for our American listeners, three degrees of warming could mean these glaciers by themselves would add anywhere from three to six inches higher seas. Would that sound about right? That is about correct, yes. Okay. Since emissions are not coming down, more scientists are at least considering four degrees of warming as possible. David, if we go that four-degree route, what do these glaciers add to sea level rise by 2100? At four degrees, we're at about an additional 154 millimeters, or about six inches. Okay, so it's fair to say that if emissions continue, non-polar glaciers would add half a foot of sea level rise. That's Roughly fair to say. Non-polar, there are glaciers located in polar regions that we do account for. But yes, all of the glaciers excluding the ice sheets, that's correct. Now, how does the sea level rise expected from these, what I will call non-polar glaciers, or, or the glaciers other than Greenland and Antarctica, how do they compare with what is going to come from Greenland and Antarctica? So currently... The glacier contribution to sea level is the same as the ice sheets, if not slightly greater. Over time, in in the future, and this has been a primary focus of many studies, especially large assessment reports like the recent IPCC AR6, they show that the contribution to sea level rise from the ice sheets will be significantly larger than the glaciers well into the future. Although it is important to note that even for the four-degree scenario, the glaciers will be losing roughly 40% of their mass, which means there will still be approximately 60% of the glacier mass. And so glaciers will still be an important contributor to sea level rise even beyond the end of the century. Are these glaciers melting at a rate that is step-by-step step with global mean temperature, or will local heat strike some glaciers before others? There certainly are some regional variations, and 
that was one of the important things that we were able to consider within our study because we have this new data set of glacier mass change for every glacier globally between the years of 2000 and 2019. And by using that data, we have a very detailed and complete picture of the spatial variation in mass change. So there will definitely be different regional signals. There already are in present-day mass change, and there will be in the future as well. And part of this is there are a variety of processes that will affect the regional temperature anomalies compared to the global mean temperature anomalies, such as Arctic amplification, for example. NASA said melting of the mass of Thwaites Glacier in Antarctica is now unstoppable. That's the word they used. Is there now a commitment in non-polar glaciers that some will melt away no matter what we do? There is certainly going to be a, a committed mass loss of these glaciers. Typically, when we think about committed mass loss, we think about a stabilizing scenario based off of where we are at present-day temperatures. We don't model that specifically in our study, but as you alluded to, if a degree and a half increase is very likely to happen, we can use that as sort of the baseline scenario for what we can expect. And in that case, we're expecting to lose about 26% of the glacier mass globally, and that translates to losing about 49% of the glaciers by number. It's a larger number because most of the glaciers that are lost are smaller, and most of the glaciers in the inventory are the smaller glaciers. They're not the large glaciers that are calving into the ocean that you mentioned at the start of the show. But there will be significant losses of glaciers even if we reduce the temperature increase to a degree and a half. Aside from rising seas, you have studied another hazard during the warm-up, glacier outburst floods. What are they, and could you give us an example? Sure. A glacier outburst flood is when there is glacier meltwater that is stored either within the glacier or behind a terminal moraine that used to be the end of the glacier. So as these glaciers retreat, they leave behind a moraine that acts as a natural dam. And that natural dam can start filling up with water, and those are referred to as proglacial lakes. And so a glacial lake outburst flood is when those proglacial lakes drain suddenly. They drain rapidly. Uh, a common cause of why that happens is some sort of mass movement that enters that lake, whether it be a landslide or an avalanche, for example. But it can also be because there is an ice core within that moraine and that ice core melts out as well. And these can be quite devastating, especially to local communities that are close by these glacial lakes, but it can also have really significant impacts downstream, both on communities or especially hydropower systems as well. Yeah, I remember stories about a 2013 glacier outburst in Pakistan, and it turns out Pakistan has a lot of glaciers, but that one killed thousands of tourists and, and religious pilgrims, if I remember it right. These things can be deadly, and they can also rearrange the landscape. Isn't that true? They can be deadly, and history has shown us that they are, and they are highly erosive. 
Many of them turn into debris flows, which is when you have a very high amount of sediment entrained in the floodwaters, and they can be incredibly erosive as well. So it does change the local system, the local river systems, by quite a lot. The title and approach of this paper suggest action to control temperature rise would have measurable benefits in controlling sea level rise and saving glaciers. What message are you sending about that? Yes, that's a very important point, because while we're locked into a certain amount of mass loss, even if we reduce the temperature increase to a degree and a half, what we show is that there's a substantial difference between a degree and a half, two degrees, three degrees, and four degrees. As you mentioned, it's a difference between about three to six inches. And so when we think about our ability to act as a society and have an impact, we have the ability to prevent a lot of the glacier's contributions to sea level rise, and we really have the ability to save a lot of these glaciers. In the event that we go to a four-degree temperature change scenario, the number of glaciers that we lose is approximately 83%, and that's a huge difference compared to 49% associated with a degree-and-a-half temperature increase. So we really want to stress that we as a society can make a difference. Check out the Radio EcoShock website. We're at ecoshock.org. You are listening to Dr. David Rounce, an expert in glaciers. He leads new science warning glaciers outside the poles are melting away and disappearing. This is Radio EcoShock. I'm Alex Smith. One ice watcher, David, suggested four top glaciers to watch, and they were talking about the Prusina in the Italian Alps. I think it's the Cheshen in the Swiss Alps. There's the Columbia Glacier right near me in Canada's Rockies and, of course, the famous Himalayan glaciers. Do you personally keep a list of glaciers that you're watching or that you are really interested in? I do have my own affinity for some glaciers, primarily the glaciers that I've visited in the past. So we we currently are working with USGS, the United States Geological Survey. They conduct a glacier monitoring program every year, and one of those glaciers is Golcano Glacier located in Alaska, and we're working on field work with them. So that's a glacier that I typically look at quite a bit. I've also had the good fortune of doing my Ph.D. to do work in the Nepal Himalayas, specifically the Everest region. So... I also have an affinity for Kumbu Glacier in Nepal and the Zumpur Glacier, Injalote Shar. Uh, a lot of my work during my PhD was on those glaciers, and so I always take a look to see how they're doing in these future scenarios as well. So your classroom was on the ice? It was. I did a lot of remote sensing while I wasn't out there and a lot of modeling, but being in the field was incredibly valuable to understand these systems. David, do you expect tropical glaciers in South America and Africa to disappear? And if so, what does that mean for the farmers? And there are cities in South America that depend on glacier water. We do expect to see significant losses in the tropical regions, especially in areas, for example, like Ecuador and Peru and the Cordillera Blanca. In those regions, we we do project that there will be considerable glacier mass loss and in some temperature change scenarios that there will be uh, deglaciation occurring in those areas as well. When it comes to water resources associated with the loss of those glaciers, 
it will be a change because those glaciers do provide a source of fresh water, especially, as I mentioned earlier, during those times of drought. So if they're able to, if that water is able to be stored behind a natural moraine and that can serve as a reservoir, then that might be able to offset some of those changes. But there is going to be important adaptation strategies that are needed in order to adjust to a life without those glaciers. Europe just set crazy record high winter temperatures in January, but I'm presuming that this ice melting process is slow enough that blips of hot weather don't matter that much. But what about if you have a summer that's three months long of uh, very high heat? Does that speed the melting? That can considerably affect the trajectory of these glaciers. For example, what we observed in Central Europe Last year, especially with the warmer winter followed by the heat waves, they experienced considerable mass loss. It was percentages of the total mass of ice that is currently present. And when that happens, while it is an anomaly or we hope that it will be an anomaly, it's likely that events like that will become more frequent in the future in response to climate change. But those events can certainly speed up how quickly these glaciers are being lost. The Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change includes reports on glaciers and world ice as they relate to climate. How well are they doing with their modeling and projecting glacial ice loss, and and how does your new paper plug into all that? So hopefully our results will be used within the next IPCC assessment report. And really the work that we've been doing, we've We are building on the previous models, on the previous contributions to the data that supported those assessments. And some of the major improvements that we now have access to are new observations of the glacier mass change of every glacier globally. And this is data that simply wasn't available to calibrate models prior to the assessment report. And so these advances, whether it be in the data calibration or how we model different processes, our hope is that we are able to refine projections and continue to improve those in the future such that we have a better understanding of what the glacier changes will look like. Well, with hundreds of thousands of glaciers, you must be doing some of this from satellite mapping. Is that correct? The observations that we are using currently are all from satellite data. Is there a central body watching the speed of glacial melt around the world? There are efforts, international efforts, that are being led to bring together scientists. The IPCC is a great example of a framework that brings together all of the latest studies and all of the scientists accept contributions from anyone, and then it synthesizes all of those different studies to come up with a cohesive picture as to how the glaciers are changing. There's also a number of different campaigns that go out and regularly take in-situ measurements of these glaciers such that we have these benchmark glaciers that have been measured for decades, in some cases close to 100 years, and that gives us a sense as to how these glaciers are responding to climate change compared to their past. As we wrap up here, I'm wondering, what are you working on now? We're working on a variety of projects ranging from very detailed in-situ measurements in the field, as I mentioned on Golcana Glacier, 
all the way to continuing to improve projections of glacier change. So a lot of the field work that we're doing, we're really focusing on taking detailed in-situ measurements of the elevation change of the surface mass balance. And in doing so, we have the ability to try and scale up those measurements using satellite observations. We're also really interested in a project that we just received funding for that is looking at the impact of wildfires and extreme heat waves on glacier mass change in Alaska. We want to understand the feedbacks associated with the changes in these processes and how they change the glacier surface and how we can account for those processes in future projections as well. Wildfires and glaciers. That sounds like interesting work. I'll be looking forward to it. From Carnegie Mellon University, we've been speaking with Dr. David Rounce. He led the new paper, Global Glacier Change in the 21st Century, Every Increase in Temperature Matters. Find links to follow up in my weekly show blog published Wednesdays at ecoshock.org. David, thank you for telling us about these glaciers. Thanks for having me. I'm Alex Smith for Radio Ecoshock. This is a climate emergency. Find out more on the blog, ecoshock.org. No sign up, just the latest info, free for all. ecoshock.org. You may know James Hansen as a leading climate scientist from NASA, the man who warned Congress about global warming in 1988. Altogether, this evidence represents a very strong case, in my opinion, that the greenhouse effect has been detected and it is changing our climate now. Hansen is out with a new bombshell paper called Global Warming in the Pipeline. It is not yet peer-reviewed, but it's out there on the net for comment. The paper is huge. Hansen says we have already reached a doubling point of greenhouse gas emissions when we count the other global warming gases like methane, nitrous oxide, and a bunch of halogens. The authors also claim mainstream science has underestimated the power of what will happen now that the Earth is so far out of energy balance. This is disputed by other scientists. Finally, Hansen says, as he has for a decade, that when you add this up, sea level rise will be much higher than we have been told. And that does fit in with our first guest on Disappearing Glaciers this show. But Hansen and his colleagues think we could get several meters of sea level rise, say 12 feet or more, by the year 2100. That is apocalyptic for most of the world's great cities and agricultural deltas. The warming in the pipeline paper is too big for one program. We're going to start with just one of the most concrete and provable instances of hidden warming that is being revealed by a change in the atmosphere. This is the story of how clouds of pollution that cooled the sea and the land are disappearing, letting in the full power of the sun. You're listening to EcoShock Radio for the world. I'm Alex Smith. Get it all at our website, ecoshock.org. This is Radio EcoShock with your host, Alex Smith. Our pollution actually helps cool the planet. New science warns, as governments clear the air as they must to save our health, Earth will experience more warming faster than ever. 
The paper is called Global Warming in the Pipeline. It comes from a team led by former NASA scientist James Hansen. The paper is still up for peer review, but evidence has been building for years. Among the authors, we can find Leon Simons. Leon is not officially a climate scientist, and yet James Hansen credits Leon's contribution to this paper. Simons nailed a crucial change in ship emissions and cloud formation. Leon is an independent climate policy analyst and a Netherlands board member of the Club of Rome. From the Netherlands, Leon Simons, welcome to Radio EcoShock. Hi, thank you. Almost everything we buy these days arrives by container ship. The ocean is really busy with transport. How could global shipping modify global heating? Yeah, so there's uh, two things to consider. Of course, there's the greenhouse gas emissions of global shipping. Many people will know about that when the ships burn fuel. That's oil from uh, refineries, which is more or less the end product. So the the good stuff, let's say, goes to cars and to airplanes. And what's left is the more sticky stuff, which needs to be heated to be able to be burned in these chambers. It's more like in between oil and coal, let's say. So it's very thick. And that contains, of course, carbohydrates. And carbohydrates are contain the energy. And if these carbohydrates are burned, that releases CO2. So that's what most people will know about energy use is the CO2 emissions associated with that energy use. But these fuels which are taken from the ground also contain sulfur. Most people know that if a volcano erupts, that a lot of sulfur is emitted into the atmosphere. If you are near a volcano, you will smell the sulfur. Fossil fuels taken from the ground contain sulfur. And the oil that is burned by ships has a, had, until recently, a very high sulfur content that was 3.5%. And sulfur, when it's burned, it will go into the atmosphere and it will become very small particles. And these very small particles, they are very light, uh, bright and they will reflect sunlight. But these particles also act as uh, what is called condensation nuclei, which means that water droplets in the atmosphere, water vapor will condensate against this particle of sulfur, which makes it create clouds. But these, because these particles are very small, the sulfur particles are very small, very large and bright clouds will be formed. And when this is done over the oceans, the, the dark ocean will be covered by a large layer of clouds, which reflects sunlight. And with a lot of emissions over the oceans by about 50,000 ships over the past decades that uh, resulted in a, a cooling over the oceans. And with the reduction of sulfur fuel content as uh, litigated by the International Maritime Organization, the concentration of sulfur in the fuel reduced from 3.5% to 0.5%. And that results in a very significant reduction, of course, in emissions over the oceans, which is then resulting in a reduction of cloud formation, which reduces sunlight that is reflected back to space. And then, accordingly, there will be more heat absorbed by the ocean. The new sulfate emissions from the IMO really went global in 2020. The ships either have to get a cleaner fuel or put scrubbers on their stacks. Is there any way to track whether the rules are working? Has there been an impact already? What to consider here is that, of course, first the rules have to be enforced. We've seen it in 2015, for example, where there were regional 
There's hope regulations near the coast of North America and Europe. And there we saw that there was a very strict regulation and also the ships, they did change their fuels or they did change to scrubbers. And we see the same happening now in starting on January 1st, 2020, where leading up to that, ships were already installing these scrubbers or were already buying the low sulfur fuels. Accordingly, we expect, of course, to see changes in how much heat is reflected back to space, how much sunlight is reflected back to space. And now from the data from NASA, we can see that there's less sunlight reflected back to space, especially over regions of heavy shipping, which is, for example, between North America and Europe and North America and China. We see a very clear signal that there is less sunlight being reflected back to space, which is in line with the limited modeling studies uh, that have been done, which predicted that especially in these regions, there will be additional warming from reduction of sulfur emissions from shipping. But the cooling of pollution is not just coming from ships. A priority for the Chinese government is cleaning up deadly air pollution in most cities, a lot of that coming from coal burning, which also has sulfur in it, as we know. The United States already curbed sulfur emissions in diesel fuel. Did you establish the role of ship pollution relative to other sources of human-made aerosols? Yes, there is indeed emission reductions from sulfur from in the United States from cars, and but also especially with the reduction in coal use. When uh, fracking started in the past decades, uh, there was a, a significant switch to the burning of gas instead of coal, which reduced uh, emissions of sulfur from the United States in about 12 years with 70%. And it was a, the same happened in China, as you mentioned, where uh, a lot of coal plants either installed these scrubbers where they... Uh, take sulfur from the from the emissions or they close the dirty plants and build new ones which should have these covers. So indeed there's a, a lot of policy happening globally which is reducing sulfur emissions. But we do see especially in the regions where, where the ships sail, we see that especially there there is a very significant increase in uh, in absorbed solar radiation. And this is a relatively pristine environment because there's of course that there are no other industries uh, and uh, there's potentially some wind bringing uh, pollution from other regions, but the atmospheric lifetime of these particles is about 10 days. Therefore, you expect uh, the most effect over the oceans uh, and the the changes of the the oceans coming from ships. Of course, we have still only about uh, two years of data starting in January 1st, 2020, when the most significant change in uh, litigation was coming into effect. It's possible that it's, it's variability or it's a different source, but the, the signal is really very strong. It's uh, about three and a half watts per square meter of increased solar radiation happening over the, the North Pacific, the North Atlantic, and the United States, this area combined. And that's a significant part of the, of the globe, and especially by looking at such a large area, that helps to reduce the uncertainty of variability. That's an immense amount of incoming energy that is now reaching the surface. Suppose reduction in the sulfate emissions on land and sea and what the paper calls the great inadvertent aerosol experiment. How much previously hidden warming will emerge and how fast? 
Yeah, that's a very good question. And yeah, the, the, of course, the honest answer is we don't know. We don't know for sure. And that, that's, of course, many things can happen. If there's tomorrow a very significant volcano emitting a lot of sulfur into, into the higher atmosphere, into the stratosphere, that could cause cooling. So that could compensate for the warming. And we have never seen such a, if, if this is indeed causing, a, for example, a global warming of, let's say, it's called forcing. So if this change causes a forcing increase of, of the high estimate, which is about 0.5 watts per square meter, that will be equal to 10 years of global greenhouse gas emissions. We've never seen such a significant spike at once of of forcing changes, especially because it's a very regional change. So the regional changes might be even more uh, significant. And we already see very uh, significant warming now happening in, in, in the areas where these shipping emissions have been reduced, which is the northern hemisphere mid-latitudes. For example, here in Europe, we just had uh, record-breaking temperatures. Some winter temperature records were broken by 5 degrees Celsius is almost, let me think, 8 degrees Fahrenheit, I think. That's very significant, and we've seen more of these significant record temperature changes in the northern latitude in the past two years, and this should really be taken into account when doing the assessments of what causes the warming we, we see in the past two years and most likely also happening in, in the coming years, because this is something that very little research is done on still, unfortunately. Well, it could be a very significant change. It could cause a very significant change to regional climates. Well, Leon Simons, do you think world leaders are aware cleaning up air pollution could add dangerous heat to the planet? The ones I've spoken to are not aware of it at all. For example, the IPCC, which is, of course, the advisory board on climate change to policymakers, rarely communicates it. And if they communicate it, it is, it's often in the, in, the, in the fine print. And therefore, I think, or that, that doesn't help to inform both policymakers or media. And media, of course, have a, a role to play in translating the complex science from the IPCC and other climate research to policymakers and to the broader public. So there's still a lot to be done to better inform both the media and the public and, of course, policymakers about this subject, especially because it could have significant short-term effects. It, it, if you talk about climate change and, and regional uh, impacts and risks, aerosol changes are uh, likely more important than greenhouse gas changes on the short term. You are tuned to Radio EcoShock. I'm Alex Smith from the Netherlands. Our guest is independent climate researcher Leon Simons. He's just co-authored a new paper with James Hansen and other leading scientists. Leon, how does an independent researcher end up as a co-author on breaking science with some of the best-known climate scientists on the planet? How did that happen? I've been doing climate research for, for a while, and I've, I've met James Hansen a few times in my life. Uh, I think first well, about 12 years ago when there was a, a court case against the Dutch government from a, a, a Dutch NGO where James Hansen was present in, in the, in the run-up to that to discuss the, the science behind the court case and behind the case for the NGO. And I was there to, to assist uh, the NGO and to assist James Hansen during the week he was here. 
So, and, and I've been reading about climate science. I've been working on energy systems for the past 12 years through my work as an entrepreneur introducing energy systems in developing countries. So this helped me to understand how different energy systems change. And of course, the planet is a very large energy system in a way. And when I read about the changes happening to global shipping emissions, I remembered the effect of aerosols, of which uh, sulfur is the most important one, on the global climate. And I realized that changing the sulfur emissions over the, the, the oceans could have a very significant effect. And I found that there was very little research yet available on the subject. Therefore, I contacted James Hansen on this and we discussed it. And uh, first, he was uh, a bit skeptical about it because, of course, it's uh, this, such a significant change of 80% reduction over the oceans of one of the most important climate forces. It's something to be skeptical about if that could really happen. But that's what proved to happen because of these, uh, the availability of cleaner fuels and the availability of the scrubbers which are there to, to take this sulfur from the emissions. And then, yeah, he asked me to work with him on a, on a paper to highlight these findings. And, yeah, that's what we've been uh, working on in the past two years. And isn't it ironic that conspiracy theorists looked for chemtrails out of planes as hidden geoengineering? Meanwhile, we were cooling the planet, but not on purpose, and we were doing geoengineering right out in the open. You say right out of the open, but I think in a way the oceans are not for many people, for most people, the oceans are not right out of the open. And that's maybe the reason why they have been forgotten in a way, both by the public and by even by uh, many climate scientists. While the oceans do absorb 90% of, the glo of global warming, 90% of the heating, the, the additional heat entering the Earth system is absorbed by the oceans. And the oceans have... 70% or 71% of the global surface, but still 100% of the people live on the, on the land surface, of course. So most people are not aware of, of what's happening on, with the oceans. And that's, I think, also one of the reasons why many climate scientists have not been aware of the initial cooling effect of ships over the oceans, which is still very uncertain, and the emission reductions and the potential warming effect of these reductions. And one of the biggest concerns about geoengineering, like injection of sulfates into the upper atmosphere to cool the planet, is what if it stops for any reason, from economic breakdown to war or political change? Now, some people hear the term termination shock and they think of mass extinction. You led a 2021 paper about termination shock. What do you mean by that term? Termination shock is a term that's uh, often used when talking about geoengineering, where the climate is cooled down by especially uh, putting sulfur into the stratosphere, and then that causes cooling. But if you stop, then this stopping that could uh, result in rapid warming. But termination shock uh, is also the effect of uh, terminating other emissions, if you terminate the emissions of shipping, if you terminate, so if you stop emitting particles of the oceans which cool the oceans, then that could have a rapid warming effect. And the shock is, describes the rapid warming. 
the rapid warming is described as a minimum of about 0.2 degrees Celsius of warming in 10 years. That is distributed globally, so it could be a lot more than that uh, when it arrives on land, for example, in a heat wave or something like that. Yeah, so this 0.2 degrees Celsius of warming in 10 years, that's a minimum to, to describe it as a termination shock. And we don't know if there will be a termination shock. That depends on the effects, which, uh, which it will uh, have on the climate, which, again, are still uncertain. But the first signs is that it might be, the effect might be stronger than most even climate scientists thought. The effect could be about 0.2 degrees Celsius or higher when it turns out to be a termination shock. And indeed, the, the, the local, the regional effects will be stronger. So there will be more warming in areas where these emissions have been reduced because that's also the areas where initially there was cooling. For example, in Europe in the 1980s, there was a very high amount of sulfur emissions from coal burning. And then for uh, health reasons and to reduce acid rain, there were scrubbers installed at these coal-fired power plants. And then in the past decades, we've seen a very rapid increase in warming. And Europe warmed by about 2 degrees Celsius over, over the past 20 uh, or uh, 40 years. So since 1980 or 1990, Europe warmed by about 2 degrees Celsius. And that increase in the, the rate of warming was caused by uh, reduced sulfur emissions, and re which caused less clouds and more sunshine and more warming. Yes, there's a novel called termination shock, and it suggests we would have to cut 20 times more carbon to offset the change in sulfur emissions. What do you think? In my view, if this uh, reduction in sulfur emissions over the oceans really causes uh, a warming equal to 10 years of greenhouse gas emissions, if, if you want to re reduce that effect by reducing greenhouse gas emissions, you would have to stop emitting any greenhouse gases for 10 years. Now, as we speak, it turns out Europe is warmer than expected. You mentioned that, and that's a welcome development during the gas shortage scare. But I think the public associates global warming more with hotter summer heat waves. Is it true the biggest warming, at least in these early stages, will be in winter? I'm not sure. I think that depends a bit on the region. We do see that certain, I think the wind, in the winter there's more, up to now, more warming, especially over the northern hemisphere. There's different uh, things at play there. Uh, of course, the, the, the southern hemisphere receives more radiation in the winter, which is even more than, uh, because the Earth is now, on the 4th of January, the Earth is closest to the sun, it will be, all year, and that's when the southern hemisphere is faced towards the sun, and that causes the Earth to receive more heat in winter, which also causes, of course, uh, more heat to be absorbed by the southern hemisphere, which causes more uh, an imbalance between the different hemispheres. And when we reduce emissions, especially in the northern hemisphere, these things might impact uh, the distribution of heat between different hemispheres. So there's, there's many things at play which are very uncertain still because, as I mentioned, this is an ex experiment which has ne been never been done before. So we don't know exactly what will happen. 
But understanding of, of these complex systems is, is crucial and how these, these large regions, which are about 50 million square kilometers, what happens if we increase the amount of energy being absorbed there with uh, 4 watts per square meter? Yeah, that, that's still uncertain, but it could be very significant. And I think some of the, the very strong heat waves we've been already seeing are a worrying sign for that. And this can happen in winter, but it can also happen in summer. We can't get into specifics about the new warming in the pipeline paper until it is published, but I think this may be the most important science I've seen in the last year or two. Generally, what does the public need to know, Leon? I think the the public needs to be aware of the effect, the reduction in especially sulfur emissions can have on the regional climate because they need to be able to prepare for the rapid changes they are being faced with. If it uh, results in temperatures which we have never seen ever in, in our lifetimes, we should know about that and we should be able to prepare for that because otherwise we can be faced with the consequences with even more severely than if we were preparing. So I think that's, that's really crucial. We're now heading for the iceberg in a way blind. Well, we have the binoculars, we have the, the information is there, we have the knowledge that there is an iceberg approaching, but we, sh- we should be preparing, we should be getting the lifeboats ready, so to say. From the Netherlands, we've been speaking with Leon Simons, co-author of the blockbuster new paper Global Warming in the Pipeline, You can find links to his work and the mere presentation by Leon all in my show blog at ecoshock.org. Leon, thank you for helping us out on Radio Ecoshock. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. I'm Alex Smith reporting. Covering the world, this is Radio Ecoshock with Alex Smith. Leon Simons is the independent climate analyst based in the Netherlands. He is co-author of the new paper Global Warming in the Pipeline. James Hansen credits Leon Simons for the work on ship pollution and climate change. We will cover more of this paper in coming shows. Leon Simons says clouds forming from ship emissions were hugely reduced almost as soon as new regulations drastically cut sulfur. That lets in more sunlight to hit the ocean and warming the seas. Now, with all the satellite eyes in the sky, this should be easy to check. So I did. In a press release dated October 28, 2022, NASA did indeed find, quote, a global standard limiting sulfur in ship fuel reduced artificial ship track clouds to record lows in 2020. Drawing on nearly two decades of satellite imagery, researchers found that the number of ship tracks fell significantly after a new fuel regulation went into effect. A global standard implemented in 2020 by the International Maritime Organization, the IMO, required an 86% reduction in fuel sulfur content, likely reduced ship track formation. COVID-19-related trade disruptions also played a small role in the reduction. That's an end quote from NASA in the fall of 2022, and it pretty well backs up what Leon Simons has told us. The hard data is in a paper published July 2022 in the journal Science. The title is Global Reduction in Ship Tracks from Sulfur Regulations for Shipping Fuel. 
Now we get into a weird bend in all this science as geoengineering may have diminishing returns. So the paper that we just quoted also said the global 2020 fuel standard is likely a watershed moment that will permanently reduce the population of detectable ship tracks. They go on, such studies will also help assess the effectiveness and impact of deliberate marine cloud brightening as a geoengineering option, end quote. But there lies a problem for artificial solutions like cloud seeding. A paper published October 3, 2022, was led by Duncan Watson Paris, and it was in PNAS, and it says, while locally the relative sensitivity of ship track formation to emission changes can be seen as large as 1.0, there is a large spatial variability, and the global change in the number of tracks is clearly sublinear. An 80% reduction in SO2 emissions causes only a 25% reduction in number of tracks detected. Since the change in droplet number is known to respond logarithmically with increased condensation nuclei, this demonstrates how far from their pre-industrial conditions the shipping corridors are, even after such a large reduction in emissions. It also highlights the difficulty faced by proposed marine cloud brightening efforts due to the diminishing returns on injected aerosol, end quote. Now, I know that was complicated, but I'm sure you got the basic ideas there. This is a new objection to marine cloud brightening to save us from our own emissions hell. It sounds like we would have to pump more and more particles into the stratosphere just to keep the same effect. Or maybe it weakens until it doesn't work. Nobody knows. But like most things in science, some object to the cooling claim by Leon Simons. A study led by Franziska Glassmeier in Science 2021 found, quote, Studies of stratocumulus cloud tracks that are formed by ship exhaust have been used to estimate the radiative impact of this process. But Glassmeier et al. now show that this approach overestimates the cooling effect of aerosol addition by up to 200%, end quote. So it's all a study that is still very much in action, as Leon told us. Ship track clouds have been looked at since the first satellites were launched in the early 1980s, but the operations of clouds are still, well, cloudy. We learn new things about them all the time. A study published last October in Nature found, quote, only a small fraction of the clouds polluted by shipping shows ship tracks, end quote. So there's a lot of pollution from ships that doesn't form those wispy clouds and cannot be seen by satellites. And even the unseen particles from ships can cause cooling. Our guest Leon Simons knows all this and warned us there's still a lot of uncertainty about how clouds work and how much cooling they may give us in the future. Remember our 2019 interview with NASA's Tapio Schneider? They found a ceiling of greenhouse gases possibly starting around 1,200 parts per million, where the massive low clouds famous in the tropics could no longer form. That would be a big loss of cloud cooling, another wave of eminent warming on this planet. But we're only about halfway to that 1,200 parts per million deadline. Who knew we were cloud makers? Why did the chemtrails people point to clouds from aircraft emissions when ships and coal-burning power plants 
we're really the ones cooling the planet. Their emissions do poison us, while millions are dying prematurely every year from air pollution. And we talked about geoengineering as a future thing while this civilization has been doing it for decades. Right now, as Leon Simons told us, we are finding out what happens when you rapidly remove polluting but cooling particles from the Earth's atmosphere. We are getting a small dose of termination shock. Enjoy your warmer winters, but know they come with a price tag bigger than we can afford. Next week, we will tackle Hansen's big new paper. If James Hansen shows up, he can explain it for you. If not, well, I'll have to do my best to pass on the science and the news about global warming in the pipeline. I'm Alex Smith. Thank you for listening to Radio EcoShock this week and caring about our world. Troubled times, hearts can give when storms come. A human wave can come together. Minds arise as surely as the seas. Divine forms in the minds of many. We believe in the heat. Days flow by to our times of trials. Minds in motion with the beat.